The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Strap on your parachute, it's time for What Goes Up. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Mike Regan, and this week on the show, we'll talk to one of the pioneers of factor investing about his new endeavor and why he's taking a more active approach these days, using quantitative methods to hunt for innovative small cap companies to go both long and short on. But first, I think regular listeners are probably wondering now who this week's mystery co-host is. So Charlie Pellet, take it away and tell them who this week's co-host is. This week's mystery co-host is Lisa Abramowitz. Lisa is the co-host of Bloomberg Surveillance and a mother of two. And even though she has been friends with Mike Regan for a decade, she's never laughed at one of his jokes, not even once. <laughs> okay. Mike, that is just not true. Let's just set the record straight. I laugh at every single one of your jokes. You could rely on me in the newsroom to be your joke laugher. So don't are, even start with that. You're calling Charlie Pellet a liar, Lisa? I'm Come calling on. him misinformed by the best out there, okay? <laughs> it's, you know, it's it's a dangerous power to have, to be able to ask Charlie Pellet to read some insult comedy for you. I, I, I this could get, this could get dangerous, but, uh. Lisa, for listeners who don't know, Lisa and I go pretty far back. I guess I don't want to say too far back, but back to the days of Bloomberg Gadfly for sure. Where I think we were the original two Gadflies. We were. We were. And now, of course, Lisa, the co-host of Bloomberg Surveillance. I need to confess, though, in, in the pandemic lockdown era, I don't watch it as much as I, I should just because my Wi-Fi, I've got a bunch of kids on Wi-Fi and I don't have a TV. I know excuses, excuses. Don't tell Tom Keene any of this, please. You don't have a TV? Your kids ate your television. That's why you can't watch Bloomberg Surveillance. That's cool. Great. I'm glad. You know what? Keep telling us that. It's the internet. It's the broadband. Save the kids. No, in my office, the kids are all watching their TikToks. I, I, the TV's in the TV room. I can't go in there. I'll, I'll, have, I'll just be too distracted. But my point is, Lisa, I, I want a download of your, just quick download of your current thoughts of the market. I think of Lisa Abramowitz as what's the best word Uh-oh. market sentiment oh, we'll say cautious I, is cautious fair <laughs> well i think if you ask my co-host they'll just say perma bear i would say that it's not so much perma bear as it is trying to see around corners that's my recent line to try to defend myself against all the people who try to slam me down but the idea is what are we missing right i mean there's a sort of idea that we're in this incredible melt-up that can't be stopped because of the wall of money whether it's from monetary stimulus or whether it's from fiscal stimulus and here we are in a situation that seems too good to be true for some people, because if you buy what's been doing well, you will keep doing well. And so there is a question, what are we missing, either about the economic recovery or about inflation or about this idea that yields will remain contained for the longer term? And these are some of the conundrums that I think that I spend every day uh, discussing. That is a quick I, overview. I, I love it. You know, I've always been team Abramowitz and I got to say, as I've gotten older, I've gotten more, quote unquote, cautious, too. 
I'd like to say it's you getting older too, but you've been that way since you, you were much younger. As, I've as, been that as way since I was a five-year-old. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. That is the that's the kind of temperature check I needed from Lisa. I'm, I'm glad because we haven't talked in so long. It's 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 a shame. But anyway, enough about us. We've got a really fascinating guest this week, and I'm I'm so excited to have him on the show. He is uh, the founder of a firm called Gerst, Gerstein Fisher. Um, which he founded at the ripe old age of 21, uh, just a few years ago, uh, we'll, we'll say. We won't say the exact date. He's now gone on to uh, start a new firm called Quent Capital. His name is Greg Fisher. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's really nice to be here with you, Mike and Lisa. And I was, uh, I was kind of prepared for this very serious interaction, and I'm having so much fun just watching the two of you interact with one another. I think I'm now officially on Team Abramowitz too. All right, all right. There's always there's always room for another on on Team, of, team Abramowitz. <laughs> it's a small ship. <laughs> <laughs> but Greg, I'm I really I'm fascinated by the uh, the approach you're taking at Quant Capital. Um, and let me describe it briefly the way I understand it. Correct me if I'm wrong, which is highly likely. Me talking about quants, it's kind of like a Norwegian guy explaining baseball. So. So feel you know feel free to uh, correct any of this, but when I think of sort of the methods of a quant, um, I think of sort of big data, you know, crunching through massive amounts of data, trying to find I don't know momentum or the factors of certain companies that historically have have outperformed. But your approach now applies sort of the quant method to finding finding innovative companies. And when I think of investing in innovators, um, I, I think of something sort of completely different. You know, not a lot of historical data to work with, sort of having to take some intuitive leaps about what trends are going to be like in the future. You know, I'm basing a lot of this on kind of the, the public face of the quote unquote innovator investment space these days, which is obviously ARK Investment and Kathy Wood. You know, you can listen to Kathy talk about her strategy for a long time and not hear any ratios, not hear any numbers. So I'm just curious from your perspective, how do you sort of tie the two approaches together? That's a good question, and thanks. So, well, first, uh, you know, Quent Capital, my new firm. I'd started my original firm back in 1992, and uh, back then there was like one index fund that nobody used. There were no ETFs, no text messaging, no email. You know, barely an internet. And uh, the idea—I was 21. I I, uh, I sold the drum set my father bought me for 900 bucks. Bought a computer, <laughs> hung up a shingle opened up a phone book and started calling people asking if they would allow me to manage their assets using this sort of like data-driven investment strategy. It was sort of a funny thing. It kind of worked out and uh and I and, and I I was successful for my investors and my my myself too. I mean, it was a, it was a great uh, good time. I'm now 50 when I was 46 I sold the company a few years ago, take a little break, work on this new thing. And and I think like the motivation I uh, when I think about quantitative investing, I think people's minds immediately go to you know algorithms and complexities and high frequency trading and all this jazz. But I think about it more as evidence based investing, where uh, you have an idea and you can go back looking at data to sort of prove out that idea that at least you can show that this has worked in the past with a large sample of data, so that it's not completely judgment around your predictions of what will happen in the future. We never know what will happen in the future, but using evidence-based investing is how I think about quantitative investing. And if you don't have evidence around what you're doing, 
If there are things you're doing that you don't have evidence of, you can't go back and look at them. There isn't data to try them. Well, then, in fact, it's a little bit more of what I think people think of as more traditional active management where, you know, it's your gut or your intuition or some prediction into the future. Um, I, I came up with this term Quent Capital as our firm name. Uh, it blends together the word quant and entrepreneur. In my career, I'd been managing portfolios of growth stocks largely globally. And what I found was that when you're trying to invest in growth stocks, it's very difficult to put a number in the numerator and a number in the denominator and compare things to one another. There's a lot more ambiguity of the valuation of these businesses, particularly in the last 10 years. So I, I use this term quent to show that you know data can only take you so far um, with these small, innovative, disruptive, entrepreneurial style businesses. You know, you mentioned TikTok earlier. My kids are watching TikTok and I noticed you didn't say Facebook. You sort of need to be like, I think, genuinely resident to the universe you're thinking about um, to really understand it. And, and I do think that being an entrepreneur myself my whole life does make me a better investor in these entrepreneurial activities. Before we get into the idea of entrepreneurship at this moment, I want to talk about the nexus between high frequency trading and the quantitative strategies that you started before the internet was as adopted as it is even 10 years ago. Did high-frequency trading destroy the notion of quantitative investing as you knew it when you launched your firm initially? It didn't. I mean, I think that to the extent that a lot of things that happened in the industry uh, made costs lower and liquidity higher, um, I think to some degree that sort of helped me personally in my firm for my investors as, you know, costs continue to drive down. But um, I, I guess there's always this argument that if, you know, if there's some good idea, like let's just use the oldest one we all know, like value investing, a good idea, right? We'll probably get to that later. But anyway, uh, so, you know, price to book. It's, in, you know, I could teach my nine-year-old how to do that. And I guess it took a while for people to realize that that was a powerful signal. And then all of a sudden, one day, everybody knows that this thing works. Everybody starts doing it, doing it faster than everyone else. Does the benefit of that style of investing go away? And I guess there's arguments around all these things. That's an easy one to understand. They're the more complicated ones. I, I think the issue is just simply, you know, if the reason that this is happening is because of some behavioral factor, um, some flaw in the human system, and or risk, you know, the efficient market stories around these things. If it's one of those two things where, you know, I, I always give an example, uh, I, you know, if you're trying to lose weight and you like me and you like chocolate chip cookies, um, I come home, there's a chocolate chip cookie on the table. I know if I eat it, I'm going to gain weight, but I eat it anyway. Um, I just can't help myself. So there are a lot of things that we all know that are well documented that people could do faster than all of us, but they still work because they're happening for reasons that are not necessarily about market manipulation or transaction costs or how fast you can trade. Hey, Greg, I want to rewind and, and go back to something you said that I find completely fascinating. And that's that you sold a drum set for 900 bucks in the 90s. I mean, was that like a Neil Pert style 800 piece drum set? I, I, and I'll tell you why, I, I'm a sort of a hack musician myself, and I recently bought a drum set off of Facebook Marketplace from some high school kid who I think was driving his parents nuts for 150 bucks. So uh, there must be deflation in drums going on there. This set, man, I would do anything to have it back. Um, when I sold my company, I 
I, uh, there's not much that I really wanted, but I, I did do one thing. I built a music studio in my basement and bought two drum sets, <laughs> but, uh, and they were more expensive than the one I sold. But, uh, my, yeah, it was a Slingerland, like old school metallic red jazz set. And, uh, I played this thing like every minute of my life, starting from when I was 12 years old, I would do anything to have that thing back. I, uh, I tried actually years ago, but it, I wasn't successful. Uh. But uh, I am still a drummer, and so is my my son, actually. But I, I uh, yeah, I think uh, I think music actually and playing the drums was uh, one of the reasons I got into math. Just you know, always counting. You know, you, I hear that a lot from a lot of smart finance people are, are side musicians on the side. It's an interesting phenomenon. But Greg, I wanted to ask you about that notion of the the switch from sort of a more index factor based approach to to actually more active stock picking. I make a joke that um, every time we have an active manager on, he goes, you know, this is the year of the stock picker. And as it has been the case, I think in 2020, 2019, 2018, I could go on. But I really do think there's a case now uh, that it it, it seems like it's going to be true. Active funds, uh, majority are once again uh, outperforming their benchmarks by a lot of metrics. But I'm I'm curious how you made that leap, because here's a guy or if it really was a big leap, because here's a guy who's been sort of looking more closely at indexes for uh, decades and then to kind of make that jump into a more active approach. I wonder, has, has passive investing, you know, sort of jumped the shark? Has it become a crowded trade in a way? It's a great question. Boy, I could talk for hours about this, so I hope you'll edit this. But, um, <laughs> but at any rate, so a little, a little bit of a background on this. So, um, yeah, I was, if you sort of look me up, you'll see that for the last 30 years, I've been basically telling the world you should build market-based portfolios, keep turnover down, keep taxes down, keep an eye on your costs, you know, buy and hold. You know, these things still work. They'll always work. Uh, Bill Sharp wrote that paper years back, The Arithmetic of Active Management. So this idea that there are certain market environments where, you know, on the average, we can't be better than average in any market at any moment at any time, right? He tells, he talks about this, 50% of us will do better, 50% of us will do worse. You add in costs, you knock out another 25%. The math doesn't change. But what I experienced um, in all the years that I was, you know, sort of working within this market-based framework of investing, um, I, had, uh, I had actually trademarked the term multi-factor in the use of mutual fund investing uh, about 12 so years ago. Uh, I launched a bunch of funds. This was like the innovative way to index. It was evidence-based investing. You're building market portfolios, but you have a little more of the things that have worked historically, a little less of the things that hadn't. Um, So I was doing this stuff for a long time, but what I watched is indexing go from like zero to a lot. All of a sudden, I mean, the whole idea of the efficient market hypothesis is that if everyone's out there searching for mispriced securities, spending billions of dollars and lots of energy, and we're all working so hard to find mispriced securities, then it's hard to find mispriced securities. And you might as well just accept the price of the stocks and markets because on average, everyone's spending a lot of time doing it. Why waste your own time? Just buy it, accept everyone else's price, and that's that. And, and that's a beautiful thing. And it, it worked quite well for a long time. And, and, but I think that when you get to a point like where we are now, where there's been this huge decline in analysts, where there's this increase in indexing to, depending on who you ask, I think I've heard something like 60% of all the assets indexed now or something like that. If you have fewer people searching for mispriced securities and no incentive to go out and do it, my son is in school as a finance major, I'm like, don't become an analyst. 
you know, I'm an analyst, um, but like there's no money in being an analyst. Um, nobody wants to pay analysts anymore. We just accept market prices. I was kind of kidding, but I wanted to see what his reaction was. Anyway, you get to this point where if everyone is just accepting market prices and fewer people are doing the work to determine if the price is right or wrong, well, we still have this 50-50 thing Bill Sharp described, but the distribution around that average would be wider. If you get it right, you'll be more right. If you get it wrong, you'll be more wrong. So I, I have this perspective and I watched this happen that there is an opportunity it's still the 50-50 thing. But if you're the person, if you're on the right side of that, your ability to outperform by more, I believe, exists and less too, which is why I actually built a long-short strategy versus a long-only strategy. My last point on this, I, I published a paper with some co-authors last summer. It was in the Journal of Indexing. And it talked about this, you know, the, the market environments you know, we never know when when we're going to enter an environment where the correlation of securities is less positive, where the, the difference across securities is, is, is less positive. We never know when we're going to enter that environment. But what we can know is when we're in those environments, the difference between winners and losers is greater. We'd been in an environment for a while where things were just trending together. I, I had this hypothesis that sooner or later we'll enter an environment where that's not true. Didn't know COVID was going to happen because as we know, I think last year, something like half the securities in the Russell 2000 um, had negative returns or something like that. So if you're in an environment where lots of people are indexing and there's fewer people paying attention to what the price should be, if you're in an environment where the difference between winners and losers is greater... You know, it's my belief that at least for some portion of someone's portfolio, and probably not the majority of it, by the way, but for some portion of someone's portfolio, having a strategy that could take advantage of those themes and trends, I, I think is important. So that's how I got here today. I'd still say that most investors should have like 75% of their portfolio in a market-based strategy of some capacity. But if there was ever a time to give this thing a shot, I think it's probably now, which is why I'm doing it. Countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I'm hung up on what you said about the right price. And I'm struggling with it because how do you analyze a stock when it's determined as much by what Fed Chair Jay Powell says today or tomorrow as it does how much they're earning or how much some people might think they are or perhaps uh, what somebody on Reddit says about the stock price? In other words, how do you figure out the winners when the right price isn't being determined by fundamentals? that are a stagnant concept. That's so, so important. Lisa, um, I think Keen said it the best 100 years ago. It wasn't important what I thought something was worth. It was more important for me to understand what you thought Mike thought his sister or brother thought it was worth. Like many of us, I've gotten you know fascinated with behavioral finance for my whole career. I grew up in the tax business. My family started this tax business in Park Slope and 
the 1970s. And I, I watched people coming in with like a shoebox filled with you know, their statements from all these different brokerage firms, what all the things they bought and like the, the way people were making decisions. Um, another paper I wrote with another co-author of mine is titled um, Past Performance is Indicative of Future Beliefs. What we did is we, we analyzed and we showed, look, we know security prices are positively correlated. Like yesterday, security prices actually have memory. It's not this random walk where today has nothing to do with yesterday. We all make decisions today based on what we ate for breakfast, how we're feeling, what music we listened to, whether the sun was shining, uh, whether things went up or down yesterday. So Lisa, you're right. Reddit today, you know, it, whatever it is, like we have to pay attention to what people think. We can't only look at the fundamentals. But I think the mistake people are making these days is to not look at the fundamentals at all. Um, and that's a whole different discussion. This point you make about looking around corners, what you pay for things still matters. It like actually matters, you know? Now, the question is, what are we valuing? Like in the old days, we used to think sewing machines and buildings were worth something. And these days, our greatest assets are the people who work for us, our brand, um, you know, our customer service scores. You know, there's a lot of things that are really hard to measure. We're all trying, but what you pay for things still matters. But this behavioral thing you touched on is critical. You know, Lisa, my 14-year-old and I, we have this game where we try to scare each other. You know, we, you hide and jump out. And, and uh, so I'm looking around corners a lot these days as well. I'm, I'm a very Abramowitz approach. But Greg, I, one thing I love when I talk to uh, small cap fund managers is you guys have your heads wrapped around companies a lot of times that I've never even heard of. Um, so if you could just kind of rapid fire uh, through for us some of the stocks that have you excited uh, sort of on the long and the short end. I mean, one in particular, there's this company that we've invested in called SmartEye. I would say like there isn't any one company I would necessarily hone in on in this conversation. But just to use them as an example, it's, it's a company in Sweden that basically has created technology that uh, – looks at your eyeballs while you're driving in your car, and it helps to, in advance, determine if you're falling asleep or you might get in an accident. So like most, a lot of the cars you buy today will have this technology in it. And uh, it's pretty fascinating. Small little company. Most people have never heard of it. It's done quite well. It's volatile. They should, they should apply that to traders too, you know? Yeah, and, and that's right. Um, <laughs> they, they, they probably do these days. Maybe just a, another one that I think most people probably would have heard of by now, a couple of years ago, they would not have, was uh, Fiverr. Uh, it's become a big company pretty quickly. But I find this shocking. I, I remember I was at a, uh, a course at Harvard, and uh, there was someone teaching what we, he called at the time the future of work. And I'm like, future of work? What the heck is that? Now, this was like five years ago, you know, and like now we all know what the future of work is. We're in the future. But anyway, but back then, you know, it was, like, you know, a couple of people from, you know, in a basement in Israel somewhere came up with this idea of being able to offer consulting services online for a very small fee relative to hiring like big consulting firms. Now, I really could relate to this. I, when I was building my company, I spent millions of dollars on my brand. I had this logo, which I loved. I, I'm, I, I don't own it anymore, but it was a hummingbird. And, uh, but I remember, you know, paying a lot of money to come up with this idea and, you know, months and strategic analysis and brand strategy and stuff that I totally value that is really important these days. 
But now, you know, if you want to do that stuff, you go on Fiverr, you type in what you're looking for. And within minutes, you'll get, you know, retired McKinsey executives, PhDs from great schools and everybody else you could imagine bidding on this project. And for like a thousand bucks, instead of a hundred thousand bucks, you'll get some pretty good work. Um, and you can do that for virtually anything these days. And that company, uh, just, you know, coming out of nowhere and now taking market share away from huge consulting firms. The barriers to entry for these little businesses today to get into business, uh, even in my own business, uh, I remember years ago, I bought one of these first voice over IP phone systems. Like that was so cool that I could have people working for me from home, taking maternity leave, uh, working from other states. Like it never mattered where they were. You call their phone number and they were there. I think that was like several hundred thousand dollars of equipment. Wow. And, you know, thousands of dollars a month of consulting contracts. Uh, then I start my new business and for like $20 per month, Ring Central does all the same stuff for me. <laughs> um, you know, I could turn it on, turn it off. Like it's the most amazing thing. Well, the idea here also is how you find some of these things. And by the way, as you talk about this, I'm thinking about a story today on the Bloomberg about how RBC's CEO is worrying about burnout. So his solution, in addition to say, take some time off, is saying, you can all download a meditation app on your phone. And I was just thinking, really, how successful will that be, you know, for, for getting um, employee satisfaction? You know, they can download that meditation app if they want to go in the closet while the kids are screaming in the other room. But I'm wondering, there is a question here about how you find these companies, because it's not as easy as sort of screening factors or, uh, you know, the same type of security selection, because where even are those securities traded? How do you screen them out? I mean, what is the investigative process that you undergo to find a company that has the true entrepreneurship values that you're looking? Well, I mean, I could give a couple of examples that are, I think, things that are sort of easy to get your head around. The first and the most obvious is, is the founder still there? I mean, that's like a zero and a one. You go on your Bloomberg machine and you look up founder, yes, no, and maybe do a little more than that, but that's pretty much. So the question, is there evidence? And there is that companies that have their founders still there and engaged, and, and by the way, engaged and still there are two different things, but are there companies whose founders are still there? Do they, is there something special about an entrepreneur being at a company at, to a certain size? I mean, I was an entrepreneur of a certain company. I think I added some value, but I also know when I got to like 80 employees, I was in over my head. You, you have to know where there's limits to that too. So there's times where it adds value and times where it might take away. But I think the question is the entrepreneur. The other thing is, and one of my advisors, great friends, her name's Frances Fry. She's a Harvard professor. You know, she always says like, uh, the best leaders are the ones whose organizations thrive in their absence. So when this founder does leave, do they leave behind the crumbs that keep the culture of that entrepreneurship still running through the company? And how do you go looking for those things? What are those things? Well, there are things like innovation, right? Uh, how do you measure innovation? How many H-1B visas file are filed? How many patents are filed? Who filed them? Um, there's, you know, how much R&D do they spend? You could pull that right off their income statement. Lots of things you could do. Now, you're not going to find these things unless you know what you're looking for. So the information in, you know, quant strategies in my mind has always been, you know, we all have access to the same data, but it's all about what questions are you asking? What are the intuitions? Um, so I would just say things like that are examples of how you might go finding these companies globally. And there are a lot of them. Uh, and they're, 
many of them that there are very few analysts following because, you know, when you're looking at smaller companies, you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, the, the whole of indexing concept, but in, for smaller company stocks, there are even fewer people following them frequently. Greg, I've got a secret trick that will get Lisa really excited. You ready? Watch her. We're on Zoom. The, the listeners can't see her facial expression, but if you watch, you, you'll see you'll see a reaction, and that is to switch gears and talk about the macro outlook and the rising yields and everything like that. You can see Lisa's she's getting excited already. But I'm, <laughs> and the reason I want to ask you is because a lot of you know a lot of uh, equity managers that I talk to will be like, "Well, sir, I'm not a macro guy. I don't give it much thought." But I know you are, and I'm curious just. You know, A, what kind of your your take on the current macro environment is inflation, uh, you know, the rotation from cyclical uh, to growth and back and forth every day. It's a different, you know, side of the boat. And also kind of how important it is to your strategy. I want to I want to answer the question because I do have an opinion and thoughts around it. But just to take a step back, I think one important thing about this strategy or any strategy, the, the idea around small cap stocks. Um so Probably anyone listening to this has seen this data. If you go back 100 years and you look at all the data we have in every country and you do like rolling periods, you know, like rolling 10-year periods or the whole 100 years or however you look at it, the fact is that small company stocks have earned about two percentage points per year more than large companies over the long term and over most 5, 10, 15-year periods. Turns out, however... In the last 10 years, the reverse has been true. We saw this change a little bit in the last few months, but the reverse has been true, that actually large companies have outperformed small companies by almost the same amount, 2% a year for the prior decade. Yeah. Is, is, that, is that the Bogle effect to some degree, do you think? You know, I don't know what to blame it on. There are people who blame it on macro issues, like the banks cut off small companies and stopped lending to them after the financial crisis, or you know, the, the indexing concepts of big getting bigger because we're all just buying what we love and the most popular things get the highest prices and the indexes are generally cap weighted. And I don't, there's a lot of answers to this. I don't think any of us ever really know the answer as to why things happened. But I think the one thing I would come back to is the idea that little risky businesses earning a lower rate of return on the average than large established institutional players. It's, it's hard to get my head around that. Like, this risk-return thing should bear fruit over a long period. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Before you go macro, I actually want to push back a little, Mike, because one of the things that I've I noticed recently about the macro outlook. Wait, push push back on Greg, not on me, though. All right, well, I can't push back on you. I can't handle the Abramowitz pushback. <laughs> I, I'm and I'm on train, Regan. I just think that you know, recently the macro calls 
have gotten, you know, both really convergent when it comes to generally positive and really divergent when it comes to inflation. The issue, though, that I want to pick up on, Greg, that I think that you're talking about that I find fascinating is this idea of betting on smaller companies and how that restrains bigger investors because you cannot commit that much capital to those players efficiently while doing the work that you're talking about. How much is the small versus big uh, argument also applicable to portfolio managers, to this idea that smaller fund managers actually will start outperforming in a meaningful way in this current environment? Oh, that's such a great point. And I've obviously one that I love hearing. Uh, but yeah, there is there is evidence in the data, and it makes sense based on what you've said, that you know small fund buying small names should do better than a large fund buying small names because large funds can't really buy the small names and make it have and have it make a material impact. Well, and I guess that the way that that folds into the macro is where we are in the economic cycle. There seems to be a churn under the markets. People have priced in very low rates. That was a main driver of performance. People have priced in a new economic cycle, albeit one that's very different given the hangover of debt, is the only way to meaningfully outperform now really have to do with names in a way that it just hasn't because of where we are in the rate cycle, if nothing else. I do believe that there's some absolute truth to that and that that will be a factor in the performance of managers going forward. I, I do want to also touch on coming back to, I, I would define this, this idea of investors generally don't have much in the way of small companies to begin with. Like they're under allocated and you can see that in the data. Um, like if you just look at the total market index, it's like 10, 11% small cap and, you know, 80, 88, 90% large cap. And that's sort of a proxy for all of us on the average. Yet consultants tell everyone they should have like 20% in small business. Now investors will, uh, institutional investors will ratchet up small business by private equity versus public equity. And I have some thoughts on that too. But at the end of the day, small business investing, people are tend to be uh, sort of under allocated. Combine that with they've done poorly for the last 10 years by a lot. You know, I mean, you, bigger than ever. Um, I think there's a good environment for, you know, taking a close look at what you have as an investor in small company stocks and then combine that with doing the work, being a small fund, being able to outperform based on these trends we see. The other thing about the macro and interest rates and inflation, um, Lisa, you've mentioned something a couple of times, and it, it makes me think of something. You know, I, I, I think the, uh, the, the 10-year bond peaked at like 16% back in 1981. And the long-term average is, I think, 6%. And uh, we just went from 50 basis points roughly in August to 1.7% now. I'm rounding, but that's close. Like, and that surprised everyone. I don't think people were expecting that. Now, I can't, it's shocking to me that we're all like worried about 2% when like we've seen 16 almost and the average was six. Like getting to three or four to me, I'm not, I, I'm not good at predicting the future. So I'm not saying we're gonna have massive inflation in it, but I'm just like the idea that we could get to three or four, like, I don't think that should be like a big shocker. I think it's possible that can happen. And I think this point you made earlier about, um, you know, as human beings, we all underweight the low probability event. And that's the one that we always have to worry about. Um, so paying a little bit of attention. So I, if I'm an investor, I'm saying, you know, what percentage of my portfolio do I have invested in things that might do well if we see that happen? At least something, you know, like the idea that there's a zero chance that could happen is probably a mistake. There is at least some chance that that could happen. Now, as it relates to you know investing in equities, I think we've all learned that 
rising discount rates are the enemy to the financial asset, you know, and a surprise rise in interest rates are like really bad. So if we all just expect rates to go up and we know they're going to go up and we're all anticipating they go up, then that's not that horrible. Like companies optimize around what they know and just deal with it. And over time, we're probably okay. But the thing that we're all afraid of is a shock, a surprise, something we weren't expecting. Like we woke up tomorrow and the 10 year was at 3%. I think we'd all be like really scared, at least for the short term. Now, you you look at the NASDAQ and interest rates over the last two months, and you've seen this negative correlation. Rates go up, growth stocks go down. After we all got comfortable at the 1.7 and the the prices sort of got baked in, now it looks like that relationship has broke down uh, where it's not happening anymore. So it's a little bit about, you know, this understanding what everybody's thinking again versus what actually happened. Greg, my my goal as a journalist is to find someone who bought that long bond you're talking about in the 80s and and held sold maturity. They whoever they are is probably the the world's uh biggest investing genius uh out there. But um hey guys, I think that's enough of the serious stuff, okay? It's time for the more important stuff, which is uh our tradition here, the craziest thing we saw in markets this week. Lisa, I know I sent you like a thousand emails about this podcast, but hopefully you read the one about the crazy things. I have a lot of faith in your ability to to bring some crazy uh, market stories to us this week. Ghost cattle. That's what I'm just going to say. Ghost cattle. There were uh, 200,000 cattle that seemed to disappear from (laughs) Tyson. And it turns out it was due to fraudulent futures trading among other things. Uh, They never existed, those 200,000 cattle. (laughs) And uh, I could go in further to this story, but it's, um, I will say that ghost cattle is the strangest thing that I read about this. So someone was naked, naked short cattle. Well, it was uh, Easterday Ranches submitted. I'm not as intimate with the story, but there was, there was some (laughs) issues, there were some issues with the tickets uh, around the particular cattle. And uh, then there was an insolvency having to do with this particular uh, ranch, but the idea of, you know, ghost cattle uh, to me I, is, is a fantastic market. I, you know, I knew you would not disappoint on this, on this metric. And I, I, I try. You, you came prepared. I, that is a strong first crazy thing. That's cool. I, I don't, I don't know that I'm going to have anything better than that. All right, Greg, you're going to pass. You can pass. I, no, it's, huh? it's at least it's a tough act to follow. I, 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 I have to follow her because this is my gimmick, but, but let's hear what you got. Well, I guess this is not like new information, anybody listening, because we're all following this stuff. But I I do find it shocking how like we watched this recent episode of this, you know, 20, 30 billion dollar money manager get accepted by all these large institutional players that are just looking to make more money somehow and watch this thing just like wither away overnight. And the idea that in this society, like you would think we would have learned by now from all these experiences over the last 20 years, if not even the last hundred. Like, I just find it fascinating this keeps happening over and over again. And then the other thing connected to that and another firm that's out there, this idea that like religious beliefs um, are like driving people's risk-taking behavior. I mean, with all the science we have out there today, I find that kind of weird too. You know, like it's just hard for me to get my head around that, you know? You know, you raise a good point, And that's one of the crazy aspects of this story. This Arcagas story is what you're talking about. $20 billion to zero overnight. It is crazy. And yet it is so fundamental to human nature. It's so when somebody presents themselves with confidence 
and they're dealing with a lot of money, everybody trusts them. And when greed outweighs fear, you know, this is how you get scenarios just like this. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I always liked the data and the science of investing. Like, you know, show me some proof. Yeah. Just to talk the house book here a little bit. There's a great story in this week's uh, business week about the whole Arkegos drama. Lisa, Eric Schatzker, your colleague on TV with, with the byline there. All right. Both are excellent things. I, I got to hand it to you. I think I'm only going to take the bronze this time in the craziest thing. First time ever that I haven't, I haven't meddled higher, but I will uh, say mine's not necessarily the craziest, but perhaps the most interesting thing. And at least I, I thought of you when I uh, conjured this up because I, I want to hear your take on it. And this is courtesy of Matt Levine's excellent Money Stuff newsletter. Lisa, have you heard of this concept, the greenium, which is... If you're selling a green bond, you can price it at a lower rate than a regular corporate bond because there's so much, Greg, to your point about uh, you know, religion influencing people's desire for sustainability and for diversity and for all the ESG type of stuff is causing so much capital to, to chase it that you can price a green bond at a lower rate than a regular bond. And as you know, as I'm kind of a tree hugger at heart, so I I I'm kind of happy to hear this, but as a market guy, I'm like, wait a minute, something weird here. And the one that that uh, Levine wrote about is actually a uh, a revolver loan that BlackRock sold to a bunch of banks, and it's a one basis point incentive built into the rate, depending on whether BlackRock hits certain sustainability uh, and diversity goals. A so one basis point. So all the lawyers and paperwork that went into determine this for a one basis point move, but I guess. The idea is that BlackRock can can show this to other investors and kind of get the ball rolling for this type, more of this type of product out there. Curious what you both think of this whole whole notion. It's the price of PR. I think that that's essentially <laughs> what this is. I mean, let's yeah. just put the, let's call a spade a spade. I mean, look, I think that there are some very real goals, and I would totally agree and applaud goals to try to make our our world a little bit more sustainable so that we can avoid that two percentage point or that two percent increase in temperature, which is sort of the no man, no go kind of place. I think that whether some of these financial incentives achieve that, talking about looking around corners, the skeptic in me always wonders how much is greenwashing and how much is reality. That said, the more emphasis, I I don't know, I'm not going to get into a political spiel, but what I will say is this, that I think that you know, there is an incredible amount of money looking to make companies look better and look more responsible. That money will find a home. How much of it will get directed to the initiatives that actually need to get done remains to be seen, but I applaud the, the sort of effort and the fact that there are more people who care about it. How about that for a, a non-answer? No, I like it. <laughs> the price of PR, that's a good, that's a good catchphrase. I actually... Um... I'll sort of bring this back a little bit to something I've been thinking about. Uh, you know, obviously, there's a lot of interest in ESG investing in general, but uh, I've been more interested in the S than the E and the G. And as it relates to small companies, uh, something I've been doing some work on and speaking to some academics about is, you know, can we link this idea that if you treat the employees who work for you well, that your company will outperform your competitors that don't? Now, the question for all of us is, how do you measure whether employees are treated well or not? And can you go back long enough to prove that out? But ideally, if you could prove that in a rigorous way, there's some kind of weak late ways of doing that now. But if you could prove that in a, in a rigorous way, you know, maybe it would lower the cost of capital 
for these companies that are doing good things for their employees or something like that. It's sort of the, the same idea in bonds, except on equities. I don't know. You know, it's it's a tough one. Uh, and actually, uh, if you ever have any ideas around how one could measure that using publicly available data, give me a call. Greg, Greg all I'll say is as long as Bloomberg keeps providing free potato chips, I'm, I'm a happy, loyal <laughs> employee for, for the duration. Mike, for the record, are they sending you shipments of them at home? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't I can't discuss that. <laughs> I show up to the office every now and then and fill a backpack and then then head back home. Hey, uh, Greg and Lisa, thank you so much for your time. One of the more fascinating conversations I've I've had in a while. Granted, the rest have been with my my teenage daughters. So, uh, but really appreciate your time. Hopefully, we can have you both back on the show sometime. Oh, I, it's been a great time for me. Thank you. I, I enjoyed this very much. Thank you. Thank you both. Have a wonderful afternoon. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Lisa Abramowitz is at Lisa Abramowitz1. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at at podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Laura Carlson. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.